0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast.
1: Hello, you spectacular people! Welcome to this four hundred eighty seventh episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host Diane, and this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going down under, and we're going to be talking about the whole state of New South Wales and some haunts going on there. We've covered a lot of the bigger locations. Now we're going to talk about some of the more obscure ones that people may not have heard of before. Bonza, looking forward to it. Are you speaking some Australian slang over there, Kelly? I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Evan, Troy, Carla with a K, and Rachel. Thank you for joining our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Naughty.
0: If you've never heard of a band called The Beatles, you must be living under a rock somewhere on a remote island. In 1963, the United Kingdom embraced The Beatles with rave reviews. When the band's first single released stateside, Please Please Me, it was a resounding flop initially. While Beatlemania was well on its way in the UK, even the drop of the band's third and fourth singles still had an almost non-existent fan base in the US. The manner in which the band overcame America's lackluster response is intriguing. In December of 1963, the single, I Want to Hold Your Hand debuted with a more favorable reaction than the prior singles. The Beatles were set to begin their first American tour in February of 1964. In a tactical campaign move to increase their popularity, the Beatles went all out. An onslaught of band merchandise consisting of buttons, bumper stickers, and even Beatle-styled wigs arrived in America. By the time of their tour, more than 1,000 pounds of wigs had been shipped into the United States. On February 9th, 1964, the Beatles performed on The Ed Sullivan Show with over 70 million viewers tuning in. As the British invasion swept the United States, the band contributed countless chart-topping hits. It's tough now to imagine a time in America when the Beatles were not popular. However, the fact that over 1,000 pounds of bowl-cut wigs contributed to turning the tide of popular opinion certainly is odd. This History Podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history.
1: In the month of May, on the 10th in 1869, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railways were first connected at Promontory Point, Utah. This made transcontinental railroad travel possible for the first time in the history of the United States. On the celebrated date, the presidents of the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads drove a gold ceremonial spike joining the two railroad tracks. As far back as 1832, both Eastern government and frontier statesmen knew that the two sides of the nation needed to be connected. Although Congress allocated funding for the inspection of possible routes for the transcontinental railroad in 1853, the building would need to wait much longer. One of the reasons for this was the mounting tensions between the north and the south, preventing an agreement regarding the railroad's starting point. In 1862, Congress passed the Pacific Railroad Act giving public land grants and loans to the two railroads chosen to undertake the task. Interestingly, in the rush to complete the transcontinental connection, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific built their two separate lines right past each other. This caused the final connection point to be renegotiated. In 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed ahead of schedule after laying almost 2,000 miles of track and coming in under budget. The rapid growth of the United States was greatly improved due to the speed and convenience of travel that the railroad delivered.
0: New South Wales in Australia seems to be the most haunted state in the country, and for good reason. This was the first place colonized in Australia. Not only is there a long history here that features a country built by convicts, but there is also the displacement of the indigenous people who had been here for thousands of years. We've covered some of the more well-known haunted locations in New South Wales on previous episodes. So on this one, we're going to explore the lesser-known haunts. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of New South Wales.
1: New South Wales is the oldest state in Australia and was the site of the landing by the First Fleet from Britain. This fleet included 11 ships that arrived in 1788. Captain James Cook took possession of New South Wales in 1770 and named it for King George III. Of course, in saying that, we all realize that the land was already being lived upon by Indigenous people. The group of convicts and jailers that arrived on the First Fleet set up a small settlement on the foreshores of Sydney Harbour. There were about a thousand of them. This number would grow extensively over the next five decades. And to be fair, the definition of a criminal back then is different than our modern era. Some of these people were political prisoners, and some had committed lesser offenses. Perhaps stole a loaf of bread? You get shipped off to Australia. As New South Wales grew, it would break apart into the different states that now make up Australia. Kelly, we've covered the haunted quarantine station in Manly on episode 17, and we even did it as a redux. The Monte Cristo Homestead on episode 51 and Maitland Jail on episode 68, all locations in New South Wales. These are some of the bigger, more well known places. Now let's look at some of those lesser known places, and we're going to start with the old Helensburg Railway Tunnel.
0: This is located in Helensburg, New South Wales, and is surrounded by a beautiful green landscape. Many people who visit this location claim that it is scary as hell. The legend here is that a miner named Robert Hales was walking through the tunnel on his way home when a steam train came down the line into the tunnel and hit and killed him. His body was severed in two. Lovely. People feel as though they're being followed in the tunnel. And worse, they see only half an apparition,
1: sometimes the top and sometimes the bottom. I guess if I had to see one, I would would prefer the top. So just some walking legs. Indeed, especially if those legs are chasing
0: you. I'll pass.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have Wakehurst Parkway. This has a hitchhiking ghost, Kelly. We've talked about these on their own episode. Going my way. I guess we didn't get this one. This is a road running from North Narrabeen through to Seaforth in New South Wales. And again, we're not Australian, so I'm sure we're mispronouncing this stuff. So bear with us. The story goes that on a section of road near Oxford Falls, a young girl, or nun in some stories, appears and accepts rides. One story we read claims the girl's name is Kelly. And it's spelled correctly, It is. (laughs) Is it you? Are you jumping into cars and causing havoc? Drivers then tell stories of being tormented by the woman's piercing green eyes. I guess that's not you. No, I wish I had green eyes. When they look at her in the rearview mirror, the drivers then crash their cars as the woman disappears. And there really are a lot of crashes on this stretch of road. People are encouraged to not drive on it at night car headlights randomly fail, or cars break down for no reason. There is no cell service in the area making it even more dangerous, especially if you have that car breakdown.
0: And next we're going to cover Red Bank Range Railway Tunnel, which is located in Picton, New South Wales, and is also sometimes called the Mushroom Tunnel because it was used for a time to grow mushrooms. Picton is said to be one of Australia's most haunted towns. The tunnel runs 592 feet in length and was used between 1867 and 1919 as a corridor to and from Melbourne. The tunnel was used during World War II to store weapons and mustard gas spray tanks. A woman named Emily Bollard was struck by a train in the tunnels in 1916 and her spirit is said to haunt the tunnel. She may be at unrest because no one is sure if it was an accident or if she jumped in front of the train on purpose. The spirit of Emily usually appears without a face. Yikes. Stories claim that a young girl was assaulted and killed in the tunnel and that she too haunts the place. Visitors report lights floating above people's heads, seeing shadow figures, sudden drops in temperature, and the apparitions of children.
1: User Mrs. Me wrote in 2015, I was there in 2009 and I filmed a female face in the tunnel on my phone. I did send it to people, but I think it's been lost now. I'd love to see that. The female seemed young with dark hair. It was towards the end of the tunnel. And this happened in broad daylight. And Tracy said, I've investigated that tunnel numerous times in the past, not on a tour and with fellow investigators using scientific equipment. It was common to see the colored lights and hear rocks being thrown around you when no person was in there. We even captured that on an IR video, which we still have. We also witnessed one of those lights becoming large and forming into a whitish figure that was floating off the ground and looked like a hologram. I have numerous EVP taken on a voice recorder and also on a ghost box. Next, we have the Gladesville Mental Hospital, and this was suggested by our listener Kathy Bergen. Gladesville Mental Hospital is one
0: of those asylums that started with a cruel history that lends itself to hauntings later. This began as the Tarbin Creek Lunatic Asylum in 1838, just outside of Sydney, Australia. Care of the mentally ill would change and get better through the decades. And yet, a creepy essence has been left behind. The keepers in asylums were once called wardens, which reflects the early treatment of the mentally ill. The ill were referred to as lunatics and inmates, and they were considered dangerous and needed to be locked away from society. On previous asylum episodes, we've mentioned Bedlam, the first asylum opened in London, England, back in 1247. This was the model that many institutions followed, so patients weren't treated for their ailments, and they weren't cared for either. Many were left in their own waste and vomit and were chained to beds and walls. Wealthy people with mental illnesses were usually kept at home and locked in rooms or separate wings, or they would be moved to private homes set up for their care. Doctors who cared for them were called alienists. This term started to be used in the mid-19th century. Most people probably haven't heard of this term, but it was resurrected by a television series that launched in 2018. The mentally ill were thought to have mental alienation, and alienists were tasked with studying, understanding, and caring for the afflicted.
1: Now let's flip to the 19th century in Sydney, Australia. When the first fleet arrived in Australia in 1788, many of those first convicts brought here were mentally ill. And anybody that was a risk to the community was locked up, and criminals, the mentally disabled, and the mentally ill were all imprisoned at the town jail in Parramatta. The first mental asylum was built in 1811 at Castle Hill in New South Wales. The first purpose-built psychiatric hospital would be Tarbin Creek Lunatic Asylum, which opened in 1838 in Sydney. Twelve more asylums would be built in New South Wales in the 1800s. Treatment was horrendous until the Lunacy Act was introduced in 1843, but improvements really wouldn't be made until 1852, when the government started investigating violence, corruption, mistreatment, and mismanagement. Moral treatment began along with work schemes as asylums became more like farms. Treatment would improve even more over the decades with medication. Deinstitutionalization began in Australia in 1992, about the same time that it did here, I think, as well.
0: Tarbin Creek Lunatic Asylum was built on the banks of the Parramatta River in a town named Gladesville. Before the convicts made their way to this area, the Wallamatago people of the Eora Nation lived here. They left behind their rock carvings. Gladesville was named for John Glade, who bought the land here in 1836. And it's a good thing they changed the name because before that, it was called Duty's Bay. (laughs) (laughs) As I look over at Diane, (laughs) got a duty. Was there a lot of duty in that bay? Okay, so we'll put aside our 13 year old boy's senses of humor and reveal that it was named for a guy who got the first land grant, John Duty. Great last name. Construction on the asylum began in 1836 under the design of colonial architect Mortimer Lewis. It's a pretty good name. That's the best name. That construction was completed in 1838. This initial design consisted of two wards, one for each gender, and could accommodate 60 patients in separate cells. There was also a central
1: keeper's house. John Thomas Digby was the first supervisor and his wife Susanna served as matron. Patients were brought in from Liverpool and the female factory at Parramatta. can't imagine naming a place female factory, but I guess that's what they called the female prison. In 1848, Dr. Francis Campbell became the medical supervisor, but Digby would remain until 1850 when he was dismissed. Frederick Norton Manning was the next supervisor, and he came on board in 1867. He had just returned from a trip overseas to study methods of patient care. Upon his first inspection of the asylum, he was disturbed to see the isolation of the patients and how gloomy and prison-like the asylum was with a monotonous and deficient diet. The name of the asylum was changed in 1869 to the Hospital for the Insane, Gladesville. This change was made to indicate that people would be cared for and no longer locked away. Manning ordered that restraints be used at a minimum. The hospital was expanded and modernized, and new workshops and workrooms were constructed.
0: One of the older buildings on the grounds was made from stone, brick, and timber, and was dubbed the Priory. This was built in the late 1840s by Thomas Stubbs, as designed by William Weaver and Henry Hardy Kemp in the Georgian style, and had a west face with a gable and painted sundial. This sundial was considered a relic and was the only vertical sundial in Australia. This portion of the priory was later demolished and the sundial lost. There is a Catholic religious organization in Australia known as the Society of Mary, and members are called the Marist Fathers, who model their lives after the Virgin Mary. They used the priory in the early days, and then it was acquired by the hospital in 1888 as part of its expansion. This land had already been set up as a farm and vineyard, so the patients just continued that work, harvesting the crops to use for the hospital. They did this farming for more than 60 years.
1: Colonial architect James Barnett designed additional buildings on the hospital grounds precinct. One of these buildings was a two-story plus basement stone and slate building with veranda, timber-framed awning, and corrugated iron veranda roof with a stone chimney. This was completed in 1878 and served as the medical superintendent's residence. Other buildings added to the property included the wash house, the dead house, and gatekeeper's quarters. I'm assuming the dead house is like the morgue? A cemetery was also added to the property at a distance from buildings and consecrated. Eric Sinclair headed up the asylum from 1882 to 1925. He oversaw gas lighting being added to the property and water issues that had continued for decades would finally be rectified. Gladesville would be the only mental hospital with industrial workshops in New South Wales. The name was changed to Gladesville Mental Hospital in 1915.
0: Horace Henry Nolan became supervisor in 1926 and he stayed on until 1950. He laid the foundation at the hospital for an enlightened approach to the treatment of the mentally ill. Despite his efforts, the 1930s to 1950s were considered a period of decline in mental health treatment. Gladesville Mental Hospital was used as an air raid shelter during World War II. The main shelter was cut into the terrace alongside the Weaver's Wing's main front. In the 1960s, the headstones were removed from the cemetery and taken to the field of Mars Cemetery. There was no indication that bodies were moved as well. The number of patients at the hospital declined greatly by the 1970s when services were decentralized. Gladesville Hospital was combined with Macquarie Hospital to form the Gladesville-Macquarie Hospital in 1993. The last inpatient services were closed down in 1997.
1: And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. As we know, the kind of care and number of deaths at these facilities lends itself to haunting activity. Patients were abused and restrained for hours at a time. Female patients were assaulted by fellow male patients and staff. Staff were also assaulted by patients, one of them dying in 1884 after being kicked in the stomach by a patient. Even with modern advances, it was reported in a newspaper in 1954 that a female patient's head was left burnt after she received electric shock therapy. Mass graves are believed to be on the property, possibly holding up to 1,200 people. And as we know, they removed headstones from the cemetery anyway, so we've got probably bodies there too. Because of all of this, the hospital is said to be the most haunted place in New South Wales. Now, we could believe that, but there aren't many stories to back that up, because this is an abandoned property left to neglect and vandalism. Covered in graffiti, there's not much of a way to get on the property. There's, I think, a One of the buildings is still being used by medical services or something and people can walk around that. But otherwise, there's no way that anybody can investigate or anything here. So when they say this is the most haunted place in New South Wales, I'm like, okay, how can you say that when you don't have any evidence or proof or whatever? I did find a couple of things here. Supposedly, there was a picture taken by Yvette Warboys in 2011 that seemed to reveal a presence standing in a doorway. And psychics claim that there are spirits here when they've walked through. Several people have written in blogs that walking the property gives them the creeps. A writer on LeftRightCreative.org wrote, I can attest to the eerie and unsettling feeling that cloaks you as you make your way through Gladesville Mental Hospital. We need somebody to get in there and actually investigate. True. Ghost Adventures, you go to all these places that most people don't. They need to go there.
0: King George V Avenue in Tamworth was created as a tribute to King George V. This is an avenue of English oaks planted in 1936 at the Paradise Tourist Park. The trees form an interlocking, cathedral-like effect that is today a protected site. There are many reports of a phantom set of headlights appearing to people driving towards the city on the avenue. Cars have random electrical problems like fuses blowing, and a ghost
1: car is also seen. Next we have the Gentleman Caves. These are located in the World Heritage Blue Mountains and are the largest cave system in Australia. The Gundangura people have been the traditional custodians of the caves with the Burra Burra being the main clan here. Each clan has its own special totem animal and they are not allowed to injure, kill, or eat this animal. The totem for the Burra Burra, get ready for this Kelly, see if I can get this out of my mouth. Glad it's your paragraph. (laughs) Is the Gungyunggalan Bigiwan? I hope that's how you say it. Now, I tried to look this up. I put those words in a search to see if something would pop up to kind of give me an idea of what this is, because this is kind of a lost language. Even the Burra Burra people don't have a real grasp on it because it's from their ancestors. We think this is a lizard because they had a picture of a lizard near this area. So I don't know if it was just talking about that. But I think that's what this is, because it says you could see a lot of these running around the parking lot. So I'm assuming it's lizards. Okay. (laughs) The totems come down from the Dreamtime, which is an explanation of how the earth and everything in it was created. This is a religious belief system that the people who live in this area have. The gentlemen caves receive more than a quarter million visitors every year. There are many creepy tales connected to the caves, which is not surprising based on what we've shared about caves in Kentucky, Kelly. Staff and visitors claim to see phantom figures. Lights turn on and off by themselves and security gates rattle. One of the spirits here is believed to belong to James Wibbard, who was Gentiline's third caretaker around 1903. He loved the place so much, they think he never left. One visitor claimed to have seen someone in the shadows watching the tour group, and that this appeared to be an old man in a suit. The Gentleman Caves embrace their spirits, and they share these stories on their website, which we're going to share with you guys. First, we have the Orient Scream.
0: One evening, cave guide Jeff Melbourne was taking a small family through the Orient Cave. It was very quiet. They were in a chamber known as The Well, looking up at the natural dome far above them. Jeff was describing their surroundings when he heard a loud, piercing scream that made him jump. It came from the chamber that they had just left. The man said, what was that noise? Jeff said, what did you hear? Sounded like a woman screaming, the man said jeff said yep that's what it sounded like to me the children started to cry and they all decided to leave
1: the cave without finishing the tour why didn't he check it out he said that he was absolutely certain there was no one else in the cave they had just been in the chamber from which the sound had come it's impossible for visitors to get into a cave unaccompanied and there was no reason for any staff to be there at night could it have been a sooty owl although it is quite uncommon to see or hear one there are sooty owls at gentlin they have only ever been seen in the nettle cave where they've roosted for literally thousands of years sooty owls make a short descending screech which is often called the falling bomb whistle okay (laughs) thank you for that Kelly. (laughs) did they hear a sooty owl that night jeff doesn't believe so as there is no way that an owl could have got into the orient cave because of the solid doors and in the orient it is impossible to hear any external noises no matter how loud even if a bomb really fell next we have the laughing children
0: the jubilee cave is currently closed for tours but a few years ago cave guide jeff melbourne was showing a group of adults through the big chamber called the water cavern marked the furthest reaches of the jubilee where tour groups always turn around to go back The group had stopped to photograph an unusual chocolate-colored stalactite and gaze into the enormous water cavern before turning around to return the way they had come. Out of the darkness of the cavern, Jeff clearly heard the noise of a group of small children giggling and laughing. He asked his group, did you hear that? They all heard it too. There was no explanation.
1: They could not leave quickly enough. Except for you and I'd be turning on our recorders on our phones right away. (laughs) Absolutely. Come on, Jeffy. The Shoulder Tap Some cave guides, while underground, have been tapped on their shoulder. They look around, but no one is there. It seems to happen to the female guides more often. Some guides speculate it is the ghost of James Wibber, who worked at Gentilin for nearly 50 years from 1885 to 1932 and was devoted to the place. He and his colleagues explored the cave system thoroughly, discovering several of Gentilin's most spectacular caves. It is even rumored that his ashes are hidden in the caves.
0: Visitors have sometimes told stories of seeing a tall, thin, old man on their tour, sporting a big mustache and dark suit. But when they look again, he was gone. The description matches Wibberd. He was a gentleman. Maybe when he taps female guides on the shoulder, he's really trying to say, Young lady, you're doing a better job than I ever did. We hope that's it, anyway.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that, but okay. And next we have the children in the hallway. Cave House staff have repeatedly reported that at night they hear children loudly running up and down the hallway in the Vernon Wing, which was the first section of Cave's house to be built in 1897. The Vernon Wing is currently staff accommodation. The noise is loud enough to keep staff awake at night, but no children are ever seen. That's when you stick
0: your foam earplugs in your ears. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Next is the lady's
0: arm. Oh, gosh. In March 2014, cave guide Jeff Molesworth was conducting the Legends, Mysteries and Ghost Tour in the mud tunnels near the River Cave. The discussion of belief came up. One of the visitors asked whether he believed the caves really are haunted or if it was just made up. A lady decided to share her story of what had happened in Cave's house just the night before when she was staying in room 211. To her horror, she saw a ghostly arm coming through the door of her
1: room. Nobody? just an arm wearing a lace cuff yikes the shared dream a family came to gentlemen when their two daughters were young they stayed on the second floor of cave's house the girls pestered their mother to go up to the third floor but the mother insisted that there was nothing to see there as it was just the same as the second floor so they never went 15 years later they visited gentlemen again and reminisced about their previous visit one of the girls told her sister and mother that 15 years before after they had not been allowed to visit the third floor she dreamed she went to the third floor anyway, and she and her sister were floating around the room. In the dream, their mother came upstairs and saw the girls as well as an older lady in a rocking chair. The mother beckoned the girls to come down, and the lady in the rocking chair calmly told the mother that the girls were only playing. The mother and the sister both said, no, that was my dream. Oh, wow. <laughs> All three had the same dream, but none of them spoke about it until the return to Gentleman Caves 15 years later.
0: Wow. That's very interesting. And now we have Hill End Pub, which is also known as the Royal Hotel and is located in the village of Hill End. Hill End started in the Tamburura area and was named Bald Hills, which changed to Forbes and then Hill End. The hotel was built in 1872 as one of over two dozen hotels built during the gold rush era between the 1850s and 1870s. The gold take in 1872 alone equals out to $40 million today. The boom brought thousands of people to the area, but after everything went bust, the place was practically deserted. As a matter of fact, the Royal Hotel is the only hotel still standing in Hill End. People claim that the hotel is haunted. A paranormal investigator stayed for two nights in room 6 and had his camcorder recording in the hallway as well as having a digital voice recorder going both nights. He managed to capture some EVPs, one of which is a female voice saying, help me, and he got what looked like the reflection of a woman and a little boy in the museum, which had once served as a hospital. There was also a shadow figure captured on the video. Joe wrote in 2016, we just spent New Year's at the Royal Hotel Hill End, brilliant old place. We were in room 12. During the first night, my husband's cigarette lighter, which he had placed in his packet of tobacco, went missing." The next night, again undisturbed, I had put the room key in my handbag and locked the door behind us as we turned in. In the morning, the room key was sitting on the bedside table and the door wide open. The locals said that this room is reputedly haunted by a lady, but no one seems to know the story behind the haunting, only that it was probably back in the Gold Rush heyday. It was a brave ghost to go into my handbag, known in our household as the Bermuda Triangle, (laughs) to get the key out. The cigarette lighter never showed up.
1: Does anyone know anything behind this particular story? Meg McLennan wrote in 2018 about Hill End. Several years ago, I stayed in what was known as the old post office. It was a privately owned cottage that was extremely haunted. During the night, I heard people talking and laughing and actually thought there was a party going on up the road. The sounds were up on the roof. I heard someone chopping and cutting up vegetables in the little old kitchen and there was a very strong smell of onions in the morning. I had a very restless night, but my partner slept through everything. We went back in 2016, and the house was no longer available to rent stay in. Next we have, I think this is called Bray Lossie. Joe also wrote about this in 2016.
0: Another place to definitely check out is a holiday cottage near Oberon called Bray Lassie. We went there several times with no incidents. Then one weekend, the weird business started at full volume. We were informed by a very well-respected psychic that in the late 1890s, an itinerant had asked for a bed for the night from the then-owner, an aboriginal man. The itinerant murdered him and buried him on the property, but since the place was so isolated then, and still is, and people moved around a lot, usually in search of gold then, no one really noticed that the property had changed hands. So the itinerant was still trying to protect his secret. Apparently, because we had kept going back, it decided to try and scare us off. Most people don't return for a holiday or weekend there, but they aren't sure why. There have been other incidents there due to this haunting. Fights, quarrels, at least two stabbings, and one of them fatal. If you do go, get yourself plenty of psychic protection. It appeared that this property had fallen into disrepair and was going to be demolished, so we're not sure if it still stands.
1: Yeah, the only place I could find that matched that name, I'm pretty sure they tore it down, so... Next, we have a location at the University of Sydney. The university was founded in 1850 and has been ranked in the top 10 of the world's most beautiful universities. The Anderson Stewart Building is the medical sciences building and is one of the most well-known buildings on campus. It's gorgeous and was built in the Gothic and Tudor revival style of architecture. Username Illboy wrote in 2015, The Anderson Stewart Building at Sydney University is supposedly haunted. My mother worked there for 25 years. She used to type student essays after hours in the old days before laptops. I'd pick her up and take her to Redfern Station for the trip home, often well after sundown, when the building was locked up and all was in darkness. I had a side door key. And let me just point out, he said, in the old days before laptops. Please. (laughs) Oh, my God. Make us feel really old. One night, she asked a Ph.D. student whose thesis she was finishing off to make her a cup of tea. The student returned minutes later, absolutely terror struck. When she regained a degree of composure, she claimed she had been groped by an unseen assailant and absolutely refused to leave my mother's office by herself. The story goes that this was the ghost of a randy old professor. Oh my. My mother had several such stories. The place was certainly pretty creepy. It contained an anatomy museum with preserved bodies and glass tanks of formaldehyde. The long, high central hall had a marble floor and busts of famous medical people placed at regular intervals on rails along both walls. One winter night, circa 1976, about 8 p.m., I entered through the caretaker's side door and was walking down this corridor in darkness with only the dim outlines of the bus visible. My footsteps echoed on the stone floor. All of a sudden, I got the feeling that I wasn't alone, and so I stopped. The sound of footsteps trailed off down the corridor for about another eight or nine paces. Oh, my goodness. My mother was seated at her typewriter as usual and asked me to get her a cup when I entered her office. She hadn't left her office for any reason. She told the caretaker she'd lock up since she hadn't finished. And so he left at about 7 p.m. The student for whom she was typing, she just phoned to clarify the spelling of a couple of words. And we were alone in the building. And then I was on this website and found a couple of just personal stories that people had shared who lived in New South Wales. And we're going to share those here as well. This is Zach's story.
0: Hi, I'm Zach. I'm a 12-year-old boy and here is my story from Vintage Lakes, South Tweed, New South Wales, Australia. The weather was beautiful as it always is in Australia. It was a sunny day. The large colorful variety of wonderful birds were chirping and the sky was cloudless. That's when everything went terribly wrong. I turned my little bike into the dark forest grove where the large and menacing trees blotted out the sky and the only exits were the two small openings at the front and back as the sides were covered by large wooden fences. I rode to the middle and stopped, realizing the birds were silent and the wind was unusually strong. That's when I saw it, a large non-human humanoid figure which was only red. My heart started pounding and I felt only fear for what it might be. It walked forward taking no notice of me. Suddenly, being the headstrong 10-year-old I was, I rushed at it. I neared it as it turned a bend in the path, but by the time I was there, it had disappeared. This figure had somehow managed to escape a place with no reachable exits and disappeared without a trace. As I biked out of that dark grove, the small passageway the length of a house felt like a mile of land that was inescapable and would trap me there forever. I was always a believer in other beings, whether you call them spirits, energy beings, or ghosts. I believed in them. But now my perspective had become something more. I had a face-to-face encounter with something that was not a living being. I never forgot that day, and I never will feel such fright
1: as I did. It's a good little writer. I was going to say, for being 12 years old, absolutely. What a terrifying experience. And finally, we have Carolyn's story. Carolyn Palmer wrote in January of 2023 about a location in Glen Ines in New South Wales. I was attending a dinner at a radio station at Glen Ines with my husband and children when I felt a hand touch me on the shoulder. I looked up expecting to see someone, but there was nobody there. Then I noticed my five-year-old daughter looking behind me and saying, oh, mommy, I thought there was someone standing beside you. I told the people at the station, but they did not seem to be interested. Almost as though it was a bit of a sensitive issue. I never mentioned it again and we never went back. I think the station is in an old church and the dinner was being held in what used to be the reception hall. I was pregnant at the time and the whole thing gave me a very bad feeling. Sounds like the kids saw whatever it was. Definitely. New South Wales has a rich history, particularly since this is where Australia got its start. Are these locations we shared haunted? That is for you to decide. Lots well, of great places to check out in Australia, Kelly. Kelly. Indeed. I think we've pretty much covered New South Wales. That's a very haunted state. <laughs> We'd love to have you check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at com or comment on any of our various social media. As a matter of fact, Kelly, Spotify started doing something kind of cool. I was getting these notifications on our email that people were answering our Q&A over at Spotify. And I'm like, what (laughs) Q&A? Exactly. I haven't set anything up. So finally, after I got a few of them, I went over to look what, see what it was talking about. And apparently on our more recent episodes, it's been asking, what do you think of this podcast? Or what do you think about this episode? And so thank you to our listeners who've been responding and letting us know that you're loving what we're doing. We certainly appreciate it. I had to go through and publish them so that people can see them. And we had quite a few. So I'm like, oh, I'm glad I finally started paying attention to this. Over on YouTube, we had somebody make a comment under our Kentucky State Penitentiary episode, which, Kelly, incidentally, I noticed we have 20,000 views on. Excellent. That's very cool. Thanks for watching over there, guys. This is from Karma is at Biatch 412. (laughs) I love it. I'm looking out of my living room window and this place is what I see. That Kentucky State Penitentiary. It's a pretty imposing structure and just a few years older than my building. The creature encountered in the woods likely came from the land between the lakes, which has a long history of cryptids. Key point, don't go into the woods around here alone or any national parks for that matter. Goodness. You also can comment over on our Libsyn page, which is where the podcast is hosted at. And we usually don't get anybody to comment there, but we did get something from Aaron over there under the Hillview Manor episode. Diana Kelly, hi, I found your podcast a while back when you did the circus episodes, a historical fascination of mine. And I've been hooked ever since. I'm writing in regards to the Hillview Manor episode you put out recently. I now live in California, but grew up and lived almost all of my life in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. I graduated from Shenango High School, which is basically across the road from it. I'm 32 now, so when I was young, it was still functioning as a rest home for the elderly. When I was in third grade, we began taking monthly quote-unquote field trips where we would be forced to sing Christmas carols, play bingo, and otherwise keep the patients company. Aw, I love that though. (laughs) I have a lot of stories I could tell, heartwarming, disturbing, and hilarious relating to those experiences. But my favorite Hillview memory is from after it shut down. I was probably 14 or 15 at the time and the grandmother of my best friend lived right across the street. Forever bored growing up in a small town like Newcastle we were always walking around and looking for something to do. At this time the place had been closed for at least a couple years I think so the weeds were overgrown and no one ever really thought twice about it being haunted or even mildly interested at this point. It was truly abandoned. This day there was a group of five or six of us. I remember roaming around the outside of the building laughing and having fun. I noticed there was a side entrance by the parking lot where we were sitting. It just looked like a rusty metal door with a regular turn knob. I remember the area around it starting to become overgrown with vines and weeds, and it looked pretty and kind of drew me in. I turned the knob, never thinking it would open, but it did. It creaked like a door in a cliche scary movie. It was broad daylight, so at that age we weren't scared, just excited for a new adventure when we entered. The whole place was dilapidated, but also almost exactly the same setup as I had remembered it. We got in through the side door where I remember the dining area rec room was where we would sit and entertain the old folks when we went in elementary school. The piano was still there with a sheet of music sitting there that my friend was able to play. Oh, wow, that's cool. The sound of that in the empty building I will never forget. I remember we took home a plaque and a couple other random items. Teenagers, I roll. Rooms still had hospital beds that were starting to rust. People's belongings were still in some of the rooms. The hallways, like you mentioned, are long and even creepier with the sunset shining through the windows of the empty rooms and the echo of our footsteps. I've always been sensitive to the other side and I got very eerie off-putting vibes that even my young and fearless self felt like I shouldn't tempt. We walked around the first floor only and left the way we came in. A couple years later I saw it on Ghost Hunters and now it has this reputation for the paranormal. Thank you for teaching me some things I didn't know about the place though. I have a lot of stories, good and bad, about that building that I enjoy sharing if you're ever interested. Love the podcast and appreciate your hard work. Yeah, we'd love to hear them, obviously. I was going to say, and yes, please send them in. And thank you for sharing. We got this email from Mary about the Coconut Grove fire. Here are a few other notes about the event. My mother and her friend were walking through the revolving door when a waitress came running out, burned and yelling about a fire. She was a black woman. They turned around, grabbed the cab they came in and took her to the hospital. Yes, the hospitals were segregated in the 40s, and they took her to the one that accepted black people. They never got her name, but my mother remembered the smell of burned hair. When they returned, they couldn't get down the street because of all the fire trucks. Holy Cross College had won the football game against BC that day, or it would have been more crowded. I'm assuming that's Boston College. Holy Cross was from the Worcester area, not Boston. Boston College folks didn't feel like celebrating, so thankfully there weren't a lot of them in there as well. Her brother, who lived in Malden, Massachusetts, knew where they were headed. He worked for the Record American newspaper and made a few calls. A friend of his ran a funeral home in Malden and asked for his help. At this point, nobody knew where they were, so my aunt waited at home for news. Can you imagine how terrified they were? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My uncle Ed was one of those who helped set up those makeshift morgues. He made it home late on Sunday. Meanwhile, my mother and her friend went back to their house in Malden. My uncle got some details from them and there was an article next to the main article on the front page. My mother never really spoke about it, but until her death, she wouldn't go to any place downstairs in a building ever again. Wow. I asked my uncle's daughter about the event. She said her father wouldn't talk about it afterwards. It really disturbed him. My mother had no sense of direction and they both would have been inside the place if she hadn't gotten lost and they finally called a cab. And then we, of course, had responded about, you know, we were glad that her mom and her friend were able to help that waitress and how devastating it must have been to have, you know, live with that tragedy in your life and to have experienced it. And she said, it always amazed me that a telephone operator from Maine could have been there. They had no idea how bad it was until they went back to her brother's house in Malden and heard the news. I do hope that they, the city fathers, finally put up a decent memorial, but land in Boston is expensive. Well, we need to keep the history alive, so... Absolutely. We definitely need to make an effort to get a memorial done for that. And then Stacy sent us an email. She said, please forgive me as I'm a few, several months behind in listening. I listened to your story about Mad Anthony Wayne's body recently and then heard the follow-up about the cauldron he was boiled in being on display in a local museum. I have a small tidbit to add to that I think you may enjoy. I grew up just outside of Erie, so of course, school field trips were often into the city. I believe it was our fourth or fifth grade field trip that we went to the museum where the cauldron was on display. She's in fourth or fifth grade for this. (laughs) They had no hesitation telling us that they had boiled his body in it to remove the flesh in the pot our young eyes were staring into and the reason why. I look back now and realize that maybe this was not quite something they should be going into such gory detail about to nine and 10 year olds. But as we all know, the mid 80s was a different time. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) And I love this part of the email and I wonder how many of our other listeners have felt this way. I know I have as a podcast listener when I've listened to a show, I think to myself, give it a chance, you know, listen to it for more than just a couple minutes and you may end up enjoying it. I started listening to your show in early 2020 and came upon it as a suggested show. The first time I turned the show on, I was about to get on the highway. I started listening and very quickly realized it wasn't for me. Since I was on the highway, I didn't have many options to turn to quickly, so I just picked something. That podcast quickly ended and it went back to your podcast. Again, I turned something else on and had the same luck. By then, I just gave up and let History ghost Bump play on. By the time I got to my destination, I was a fan. I spent every drive for the next several days listening to your show, and you are still my favorite. Very glad I couldn't get away from you that day, lol. I thought you might find this story, lol. So we actually laughed about it. (laughs) Yes, we did. And I just wrote back to her. It's like we were stalking you or maybe we're like a spider web you got stuck in. (laughs) Perfect. Clearly, the universe knew that HGB was for her. So we do hear that from people occasionally. I mean, we do have a different listenership. I mean, we like to say that you guys are a lot smarter than other listeners out there because we do get into a lot of the history. And some people think that that's boring. This is true. They don't realize history isn't boring. It's terrifying. We have a higher caliber of listenership. That's what we say. So that's a a big thumbs up to everybody. Yes, <laughs> you should get badges for that. Big pat on the back. <laughs> so we want to thank all of you guys for sharing that stuff. And we want to thank the rest of you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Rachel Lindsay for increasing your donation. We're going to be moving you into a chest tomb.
0: Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. And I hope you enjoy all those bonus episodes.
1: Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page. made made Tr- Tron's Continental? I'm thinking about the Tron ride. It is kind of <laughs> like train, isn't it? <laughs> it was kind of lackluster. <laughs> On the celebrated date, the presidents of the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads drove a gold ceremonial spike joining the two railroad tracks. wonder if it's still there. You think we could pull it out? <laughs> Cha-ching.
0: And next we're going to cover Red Bank Range, Range Railway. And next we're going to cover Red Bank Range Rip. Rail- it's a lot of R's. I thought you liked alliteration. I do, but it won't come out of my mouth. <laughs> and next we're going to cover Red Bank Range Railroad.
1: <laughs> railway. It's
0: a railway. Oh my
1: God! Elmer Fudd.
0: Construction on the asylum began in 1836 under the design of Colonel Architect Mortimer.